is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for an American classic science fiction TV series that set the standard for all others that would come after it. Here's Jesse. The Twilight Zone is some of the best science fiction ever written. Created, produced, and narrated by Rod Serling, the series was shot in black and white for 156 episodes between 1959 and 1964. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. At a time when television viewers were familiar with standards like Leave it to Beaver, The Lone Ranger, and I Love Lucy, The Twilight Zone was a dark psychological thriller mixing fantasy with suspense in the dark hours of the night. My name is Talking Tina, and I love you very much. Will you shut that thing off? My name is Talkie Tina, and I don't think I like you. My name is Talkie Tina, and I think I could even hate you. After graduating high school in 1943, Rod Serling began his military career, serving in the 11th Airborne Division in World War II. Nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life. It influenced much of his writing. I was traumatized into writing by war events, by going through a war in a combat situation and feeling the desperate sense of the terrible need for some sort of therapy. Get it out of my gut, write it down. This is the way it began for me, because I came back with 11 million other guys who had very similar problems. So it was not unique, nor was it not to be expected. We, were, we had very special problems that we were going to write about. He was face to face with death every day and he used the unpredictability of death in his writing. I can't conceive of anybody not falling into this pattern who writes, has certain special loves, certain special hang-ups, certain special preoccupations and predilections. In my case, it's a hunger to be young again, a desperate hunger to go back where it all began. And I think you'll see this as a running thread through a lot of things that I write. And part of creativity, of course, is being able to have the capacity to convey that kind of hunger, that kind of nostalgia, that kind of bittersweet feeling to those who have never had it. Throughout the 1950s, Rod Serling established himself as one of the most popular names in television. He was also famous for criticizing the motives of other television writers at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that 90% of the writers who walk around laying claim to the honored sobriquet of writer, are thinking in a sizable portion of their mind, uh, will they love it in Des Moines? Will they understand it in New Orleans? And consequently will deliberately prostitute and write downward to, to what they believe is the lowest common denominator. And when you start to preoccupy yourself, I think you're in trouble. Because I am writing in an art form, the whole function of the art form is to be translated to other people. There's an emotional experience to be shared. Consequently, it isn't just me and my tower. It's how people will react to what I write. Serling began his professional writing career in 1950, earning $75 a week as a network continuity writer for WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. By the winter of 52, he gave up the security of his paying job to take a chance at freelance television writing. He dropped everything and moved his wife and kids to New York. The immediate motive at the time, the prodding thing that pushed me into it, was that I'd been writing for a Cincinnati 
television station as a staff writer, which is a particularly dreamless occupation composed of doing commercials. As I recall, there was a, uh, a drug, a liquid drug on the market at the time that uh, could cure everything from arthritis to a fractured pelvis. And I actually had to write testimonial letters. And on that particular day, I just had it. And though I had been freelancing concurrent with the staff job, the best year I'd ever had, I think we netted about $700, which is hardly even grocery money. And that one night, we just decided to, you know, sink or swim and go into it. When television was new, shows aired live. But as studios began to tape their shows, the business moved from the East Coast to the West. The same companies who sponsored the shows were often involved in editing and censoring the programs as they saw fit in order to protect their brands from what they considered to be controversial subject matter, situations, or competing product placement. And now, Mr. Serling. This cigarette gives all the advantages of extra length and much more. The great taste of 21 vintage tobaccos grown mild, aged mild, and blended. Serling was often forced to change his scripts after corporate sponsors found something they didn't like. He soon realized that the only way to mitigate such drastic sponsor influence was to create his own show. We have what I think, at least uh, theoretically anyway, because it hasn't really been put into practice yet, a good working relationship. We're in questions of taste, in questions of the art form itself, in questions of drama. I'm the judge. Because this is my medium and I understand it. I'm a dramatist for television. This is the area I know. I've been trained for it. I've worked for it for 12, in it for 12 years. And the sponsor knows his product, but he doesn't know mine. So when it comes to the commercials, I leave that up to him. Serling was demanding a new kind of relationship with the advertiser. One that protected both the integrity of the program and the dollar of the advertiser. Rod Serling felt so strongly about protecting his content that he produced videos for companies that were interested in buying time on his show. He was making it clear that he was in charge and that content was king. You gentlemen, of course, know how to push a product. That essentially is your job. My presence here is for much the same purpose, simply to push a product. To acquaint you with an entertainment product which we hope and which we rather expect will make your product pushing that much easier. What you're about to see, gentlemen, is a series called The Twilight Zone. We think it's a rather special kind of series. Essentially, people watch television to get entertained. And the keynote of this series, the thing we're concerned with, the thing we're aiming for, the thing we're working toward is entertainment. This is a series for the storyteller, because it's our thinking that an audience will always sit still and listen and watch a well-told story. When we return, the story of the Twilight Zone in Rod Serling continues right here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And by the way, go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we return to the story of Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. Here's Jesse. When Serling submitted a script called The Time Element to CBS as the pilot for The Twilight Zone, CBS used the script for another show, The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse, in 1958. Westinghouse, first with the future, presents The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to another Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Tonight, we're going to see a story written by Rod Serling and starring William Bendix. Our story begins in a doctor's office. A patient is sitting there. He walked into this office nine minutes ago. This would have been the original premiere episode of The Twilight Zone. The story concerns a man who has vivid nightmares about the attack on Pearl Harbor decides to visit psychiatrist. Can you tell me in one simple statement whether or not I'm off my rocker? Without dragging in Sigmund Freud and a lot of medical school English, can you tell me what's wrong with me? I can try. Well, I keep having this dream. I've, I've had it, I don't know, five or six times now. What sort of dream? A real one. Did you ever have any wacky dreams that seemed real? Oh, sure. I guess we all have. But have they happened over and over again? Recurred, same dream. The same dream, identical, it doesn't change. The twist ending reveals that the patient had died at Pearl Harbor and that the psychiatrist was actually the one having the vivid dreams. Yes, sir? We're up and on the rocks. Something wrong? Uh, no. Who's the guy in the picture? Oh, him? No, the, uh, the other picture. Oh, that's Pete Jensen. He used to tend by here. No? Jensen? No. Just look familiar, that's all. Where is he now? He's dead. He was killed at Pearl Harbor. The episode received so much positive fan response that CBS greenlit The Twilight Zone which officially premiered the night of October 2nd, 1959. There is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the sunlight of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be called the Twilight Zone. A man suffering from amnesia wanders through a small town, desperately searching for people until it drives him mad. Please, somebody help me. Somebody's looking at me. Somebody's watching me. Help me, please. Help me. Help me. Help me. Unaware that he's part of a secret military experiment gone terribly wrong. What happened to him is that he cracked. Delusions of some kind, we assume. But let me tell you all something, gentlemen. If any one of you were confined in a box five feet square for two and a half weeks, all by your lonesome without hearing a human voice other than your own, I'll give you especially good odds that your imagination would run away with you too. 
For Rod Serling, the horrors that he experienced in World War II were always a motivating factor when it came to writing scripts. His ideas, however, came from a different place. Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue, in your own language form. Uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air, like, like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. And the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. From a series of student talks recorded at Ithaca College in 1972, Rod Serling shared his philosophies on writing and storytelling. The principal obligation you have as the writer is to go to a climax which interests and excites, and, and if it doesn't satisfy, uh, at least makes an audience sit up and take notice of it. It must also be valid. It must take the various character traits of the individuals involved in your story and make them do something or react to something as their nature dictates. This is to say that, for example, if you're dealing with a Quaker pacifist who is constantly being beaten around the head by the neighborhood bully and who suddenly at one given moment in, in his life says, I will not turn my cheek again, I will hit back, and does so, you must, have, you must absolutely believe that there is a moment when a man will turn his back on a fundamental belief and do something foreign to his nature. Or the reverse is true. You can show a bully who all his life has stepped on people, who does it out of a sense of sheer cruelty, who has no sense of the value of the dignity of other human beings or the feelings of other human beings, and in a given moment in time put into a position where he has a chance to save someone he couldn't care less about, but literally risks his life to do so. There must be a reason he does it and a believable explanation as to why he does it and the fact that you believe that he does it. This is the sort of thing you must do. The Twilight Zone won two Emmys and a Golden Globe, but even though the show had loyal fans, ratings were down. After five years and 156 episodes, 92 of which were written by Serling, he was done with the show. In 1964, he decided not to oppose its cancellation sold the rights to CBS. I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, I'd just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday, and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. But very often, one of the major problems with strong writers who deal in dialogue above plot, which happens to be, I think, more my forth than, than plot, dialogue. If you look at some of the pages of the stuff I've written, and even some of the good things, shut your eyes, you won't know who's talking, because they all talk alike. And who do they talk like? Me. Now, that's wrong. And it's something I've got to lick over the years, but it's a, the most common literary problem, I think, of strong dialogists. On May 3rd of 1975, he had a minor heart attack and was hospitalized. A second heart attack two weeks later puts him in the hospital for open-heart surgery. After 10 hours on the operating table, 
Serling suffered a third heart attack and died two days later. He was 50 years old. A symbol of a sad but rather commonplace event. An impressive funeral the deceased laid out in the most acceptable manner. But in this case, at the last moment, deciding that in matters concerning the trip to the great beyond, perhaps this trip wasn't necessary. Very often when you write for a living, you run across blocks, moments when you can't think of the right thing to say. Now happily, there are no blocks to get in the way of the full pleasure of Chesterfield. Great tobaccos make it a wonderful smoke. Try them, they satisfy. Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that as always, Jesse. And it's just so interesting to hear from the artists themselves and to hear, well, to hear him talk about his World War II experience. And before there was PTSD diagnoses, they called it shell shock, but nobody came back for therapy. I mean, you just, you basically had to suck it up. And he channeled all that, well, well, all that nightmarish uh, activity that he'd witnessed and all the nightmares he experienced after into creativity and channeled it into this remarkable art. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. I mean, uh, my favorite of the recent past months, we get to hear from Orson Welles himself talking about his life, his creative life, mistakes made, uh, ambitions. Again, this is what we do here every day on Our American Stories from their voices to your ears, we try to stay out of the way and we try to just keep it as real as possible, as authentic as possible. And these American stories, well, they come from every possible type of American. And this was one of the most creative Americans. And by the way, that he had to sell his franchise back to CBS. The very people who probably were skeptical about his work in the first place. My goodness, that just hurt me to hear personally. This is Lee Habib, Rod Serling's story, The Twilight Zone story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and it's time for our Opportunity America series sponsored by Coke Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Coke and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. And the great folks at Coke make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. In the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at CokeIndustries.com. That's Coke, K-O-C-H, Industries.com. And here stand I with today's story. Each year, About a quarter million members of our military take off their uniforms and prepare to enter or re-enter the civilian job market. Many of these veterans have spent much, if not all, of their adult lives in the post-9-11 military, so the transition 
can be every bit as shocking as the first days of basic training. To help veterans with this process, the second largest private company in the country, Coke Industries, looks to a retired Army infantry officer, Colonel John Buckley. John's career took him all over the world, including multiple tours commanding soldiers in peacekeeping and combat operations in Bosnia and Iraq. He also directed two of the Army's top schools and served in key staff and planning positions throughout the United States and Europe. As John approached 30 years in the Army, he and his family began to plan for the next chapter of their lives. We were able to work an assignment back to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where I was the director of the Commanding General Staff College, and I thought, what a great place to, to retire from. And I looked at the timeline, and I saw that it was time for me to go to the Transition Assistance Program, which is a one-week course that teaches you everything you need to know, or at least it's advertised to teach you everything you need to know about transitioning back into the private sector. So to put that into perspective, I had anywhere from nine to 12 months of training and preparation how to become a military person and in particular an infantry officer and I get one week to learn how to become a civilian. So I attended the course and it was one week later that I was given directives to go back to Iraq. I really didn't want to go back to Iraq. My wife really didn't want me to go back to Iraq. My kids didn't need me to go back to Iraq. And I really considered and pondered just submitting my retirement then and there and saying, I'm done and go into work somewhere, but I was not prepared. I knew I was not prepared to make the transition. So I took my one year assignment. While I was in Iraq, on some of my free time, which I didn't have a lot of it, I spent most of it on LinkedIn and did a lot of research and looking for jobs and drafting a resume. And you can imagine with, with the workload that I had in Iraq, I didn't have a lot of time and I, I really didn't have a lot of assistance, at least not close by. But I, I thought I was prepared when I returned finally a year later. I had a little over 11 months before my mandatory retirement date. I just thought that sure, I can get a job. And so I started writing these resumes that were about four pages long and sending them out to job titles, not really looking at whether I was qualified or not. I applied 155 times. I didn't even get a single phone call. 155 job applications and not a single one got past the recruiters and HR. John knew that he had to do something different to get through or around this brick wall. So he turned to the skill set developed during his long and remarkable army career. As an infantry officer, of course, you have to study your enemy. You have to know everything about them, what they think, what their equipment might be, all their challenges, how they got where they are. You've got to do a lot of in-depth research on your opponent. And that's what I began to do with the recruiters. And then subsequently, I started doing informational interviews. That's where I got out and I started talking to professionals. I started talking to former colleagues, people who had made the transition. They were useful, but in many cases, they translated their experiences back into a language that I understood, which really kept me hamstrung. And it wasn't until I started reaching out to those who never served a day in their life I started talking to mid-level managers, higher managers, CEOs, COOs, 
and I approached him by saying, please tell me how come and what made you so successful in your career field. When I came off of patrols in Iraq or Bosnia, the first person I talked to was my intelligence officer. And I would have to fill in the blanks for them. What did the population look like? What were they doing? What were they saying? What were they wearing? How were they looking? How are they looking at you? And those kinds of things that help us understand the environment that we're working in. And that's how I used these informational interviews. I understood the career fields. I understood how to speak their language. I learned rather quickly that I wasn't speaking English. And through those experiences, it really improved my ability to perform in my interviews, as well as to write resumes using language and terms that were important to that career field. With this new approach and through diligent networking, John learned that many companies, including Coke Industries, were interested in hiring more veterans. And really, who better to help a company understand and hire veterans than a 30-year veteran of the United States Army? I was able to set up a, a private discussion with my future boss. I drove from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, down here to Wichita, Kansas, about a three-hour drive for about a two-hour meeting. And in that discussion, I mentioned that I read the job description, and I really think the job description was narrow. It was narrow in the sense that they just wanted a recruiter. And I said, well, I would prefer that we also protect that investment. We really need to look at recruiting and retention of the military veteran. And at the conclusion of the two-hour meeting, I mentioned to my future boss, uh, so what's next? And the answer I got literally made me cry on that three-hour drive back home. He said, well, if you're interested in the job, just apply for it. Because I had fully expected at the conclusion of my two hours of, of revealing everything about a military relations leader and recruiting and retention that, that they would just offer me a job. I really expected the answer to be, well, before you get back to Leavenworth, we'll send you a contract and we'll see if we can just sign it and move on. And that's not what I got. But I applied for the job. I went through an interview process. I was rather successful in the interview. And when I, I came here for the in-person interview, I think what really struck me was that I could sense the values of the company. And when I read the book, The Science of Success, and got to the chapter, chapter four, that listed the guiding principles, I leaned over to Lorraine, my wife, and I said, you know, if this is even half true, this is where I need to be. And we're listening to John Buckley, who's Coke Industries' military relations manager. And he himself served 30 years in the United States Army, retiring as a colonel. And he knows the problem of transition from military life to civilian life, well, A, because he experienced it, and B, because he knows his men and his women, well, as well as anybody, on the ground with them for so long. And as we're winding down from the longest wars in American history, there are over 4 million veterans who've served in the post-9-11 era who have returned to civilian life. And of these post-9-11 veterans making the transition, 75%, well, they're under 34. They've gained great and distinctive skills and experiences in the military, and they may have many decades left to accomplish great things in the private sector. In Coke Industries, which employs 67,000 people in America, well, they're doing something about it, and they're bringing this 
message to America and to us and sponsoring these segments because, well, in the end, they want other companies to know that these men and women who served, they'll make great employees. And when we come back, more of John Buckley's story, Coke Industries Military Relations Manager, here on Our American Story. And we're back with our Opportunity America series, sponsored by the great folks at Coke Industries. And we just heard how John Buckley transitioned from his 30-year-long career as an Army infantry officer into a new career at Coke Industries as their military relations manager. Let's return to Stan and the rest of John Buckley's story. As John carved out his new role as Coke Industries' military relations manager, he kept turning to the eight principles of market-based management. The words may be a little different than the ones that John grew up with in the Army, but the underlying values were aligned. Now, if folks across this massive organization actually walked the walk, then John could trust his new civilian colleagues without needing to know them personally. That's something that was possible in the military, but is quite rare outside of it. A veteran employee came to me just after he received his annual review and, and he got a glowing review and he, he also got a, a bonus, he got a pay raise. It was unexpected to him that he would be rewarded so much for the value that he created. But his problem was he found a job that really would satisfy him and it was in a different Coke company. And so I challenged this veteran employee. I said, loyalty is not a guiding principle. It should be probably, and it, it's probably a component of a lot of the guiding principles, but self-actualization is a guiding principle that I would challenge your supervisor on. He had not yet talked to a supervisor. He was afraid to approach his supervisor because he was afraid that the supervisor would get very upset and say, I just gave you a bonus. I just gave you a pay raise. Why are you want to leave me? And when he went back and he challenged the supervisor, the supervisor picked up the phone and called the other hiring manager, learn more about the job, discuss the qualities, the strengths, and the skills and abilities of this veteran employee. And now the happiest veteran employee in Coke Industries is, is the one who challenged his supervisor and now has the job that he really wanted. John felt increasingly at home in his new civilian career, but he realized that too many of his fellow veterans were on much rockier journeys. Two recent studies independently showed that about 50% of transitioning veterans leave their first civilian job within the very first year. And that number grows to almost 80% in 18 months. So John began to actively build relationships and programs to reduce these barriers to transition. And he starts with the largest gap between the military and civilian worlds. When you look at the fact that less than half of 1% of our American population is currently in uniform, you can maybe appreciate that communication and cultural gap. 80% of our military enlistees mentioned in surveys that somebody in their family served in the military, and 35% of them say that their parents served in the military, 
then you can see that the segment of our society that is serving in the military is getting smaller and smaller. It's becoming a family business. And so the gap between those who serve and those whom we protect is getting larger and really more challenging to overcome. And so some things to understand as a business leader who is interested in hiring veterans is, well, what value do these veterans bring to me? And when you understand the performance, when you understand the critical creative thinking, the breadth of their experiences, their maturity, right away you can see the benefits of hiring a veteran. But then you got to look at how do you help them acclimate? How do you help them assimilate into your company and into the private sector? A lot of military people are used to getting a new job practically every two years. And what's interesting is to understand how they do that. After a new job, maybe within six weeks and certainly within six months, you've already scoped out the next job. You know where it is, you know if you have to make a change, if you have to move, you know if it's an education requirement in between there, if you've got to demonstrate certain skills or abilities. You start networking a little bit to see if you can stay there at the military base, you take into your family's condition or situation. You have to start looking for an assignment where you can stay stationary. That might mean you have to go overseas while your family stays put. But all these very, very complex things have to be thought about as you choose your next step in your career progression. And all that is lost when you come into the private sector. In many cases, because the turnover isn't nearly as great, you're not getting a new commander every two years, you're not getting a new job every two years, the veteran comes into the company and they feel like, well, I've been here six months and nobody's talked to me about what's next. And a lot of private sector companies don't do that. They may wait for the first or possibly the second annual review before they start considering what's next. And culturally, that's a slap in the face to a veteran. So there are simple things you can do as a company. Just have the conversation sooner. It's not really changing anything you do. It may change the timing. Sit down and say, you know, you're holding this job and and here are some opportunities that are available to you. And these are some things we can orient on. And maybe start working a plan for them to get the skills and experiences. Something that shows that you're really interested in their career development. Another major culture gap is the perception among many civilians that all veterans are suffering from debilitating post-traumatic stress. Between 11 and 20% of veterans who have served in Iraq or Afghanistan do indeed report having PTSD in a given year, figures that are actually not too far off from the civilian population who experience all sorts of traumas outside of war. John knows this firsthand and treats it as something that we can acknowledge and overcome together instead of a part. I work in a private office with a door and outside of my door is a cubicle farm you could call it with about seats for about 40 different people and then across the way is an administrative area and that's where we make copies and use a three-hole punch and if my door is slightly ajar and somebody uses that three-hole punch I become acutely aware of my environment because it sounds to me like somebody's chambering around. Now for me, I haven't yet dived under a table or anything like that, so I'm able to control it, but other people who may have, other veterans who have, have been in some serious issues may have some more severe reactions. But 
if you understand the resources that are available to these veterans and a, a company that has a good retention program would have these numbers and websites available to themselves can introduce these things to the veteran employee. The Veterans Administration is getting much better in some of its post-traumatic stress counseling and mentoring that can help the veteran understand how to manage anxiety, how to manage these issues, and over time they can manage them to the point where you would never even know that they have an issue. And in the big picture, the skills and experiences that veterans bring to their civilian employers far outweigh these cultural frictions. Veterans and civilians may have different life experience and use different vocabulary, but every workplace requires quality people and good leadership. And good leadership is good leadership, military or civilian. If businesses have a challenge and they need a leader to do it, probably without much orientation, you could take just about any senior leader out of the military, non-commissioned officer, warrant officer, or commissioned officer, and they could solve the problem rather quickly. I could give you one example. I had just reported to the Pentagon, and I was working directly for the Army Chief of Staff. So the individual who was responsible to train and equip the U.S. Army, I was a strategic planner working directly for him. I wasn't there even a week before... Abu Ghraib came into the public eyes. And so those don't remember, Abu Ghraib was the name of a prison in Iraq where some just awful abuse, prisoner abuse and some other activities were going on that was just absolutely outside of our values and was unacceptable to everybody around, but it happened nonetheless. So I'm a strategic planner for the chief of staff of the army. I'm an infantryman. And every issue that was raised were associated with military police and security police. Yet, I was directed to run a staff that was going to identify the issues. I was required to study up to 22 different investigations and their results that were done by various organizations from the CIA to the Department of Defense to those that were funded by the government and Congress and whatnot, and I had to analyze every single one of those and come up with a strategy that would prevent us from, from an Abu Ghraib ever occurring again. You talk about something that is way outside of my scope, way outside of my area of comfort, certainly outside of my expertise, and I was a young lieutenant colonel responding directly to a four-star general, and I was able to solve the problem and I created programs, I created the solutions across the, the board to include the entire strategy and many of those programs are still in effect today. And, and I'm just using that as a, as a small example, not to highlight anything I accomplished, but absolutely to, to emphasize that many, many senior leaders were put into areas that are well outside their scope and areas of expertise and succeeded based on their abilities to lead and manage. And the private sector and the business leaders can't overlook that. You want a good leader, you want a good manager, you can rely on just about anybody who's had a successful military career because they can see through the stress, they can lead, coach, teach, and mentor somebody to success. And you've been listening to John Buckley, a retired Army colonel, 30 years serving our country, now working at Coke Industries as a military relations manager 
Our Opportunity America series brought to us by the great folks at Coke Industries. Go to CokeIndustries.com. That's K-O-C-H Industries.com. And by the way, that number of 50% of transitioning vets leaving their jobs, their first jobs in the first year, well, they're working hard to fix that. John and his team at Coke. Their stories here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and if you've been anywhere near a beach or a campsite in the last few years, you've probably noticed the high-end Yeti brand coolers just about everywhere. If you don't already own one yourself, that is. They're built to last, they work remarkably well, and no, they're not sponsors. The people behind these Yeti coolers are a family of entrepreneurs out of Austin, Texas, and they have an incredible story. Here's Jesse. Roger Cedars is a businessman and inventor. He quit his job as a high school teacher in the mid-70s to go full-time with his company, Flexcoat, which is still in business today. So it's no surprise that he passed on an innovative attitude to his sons, Yeti co-founders Roy and Ryan Cedars. But even though the entrepreneurial spirit resonates loudly, it's Roger's lessons on fatherhood that stand out as Roy and Ryan raise families of their own. Not bad, Ryan. For a 28-gauge. When Ryan was still wearing diapers, we'd have a thunderstorm. He would wake up, go look out the window before daybreak. When he was able to get outside, he'd take a little red wagon and a little net and go out in the ditches and uh, scoop up crawfish out of the ditches. There's just something in his blood that makes him want to hunt. If he was born 500 years ago, in Texas, and you had to survive, he could still survive. You know, there's something about that. I know those Comanches might get me. (laughs) (laughs) Hunting and fishing was our passion. I think some people would think we're over the top, but you you have to have that passion first, and then you might stumble into something. We were into the outdoors, we were into the gear, and, and that's what eventually got us to Yeti. Boy had always said that ideas are like commodities, and, and they really are, unless you're hanging around someone like Roger or Roy who can bring them to life in front of you or take them to market. It was the, really the boat business that brought me to the cooler business. Cool. Everything about the boats I was putting together was high-end and durable and for fishing the Texas Gulf Coast the way we like to fish, except ordinary coolers. They weren't really matching the quality of the rest of the boat. And if you look back, everything led to the cooler business. Growing up out here in Driftwood, in the Texas Hill Country, we spent our entire days outside. We were running around with BB guns, and then eventually pellet guns, then eventually 22s. You know, our upbringing, our dad's small business, him wearing all the hats. We were always out getting our hands dirty, building stuff. I think that exposure, it was valuable. Growing up when we worked, we worked inside the business. Other kids were out there mowing lawns to make their summer money, and Ryan and I were building fishing rods. It was always flex code. As long as we could remember. Yeah. That started out of his garage in Houston when we were 
probably the, I think it was the same year I was born and Ryan was three or four. If we can't find what we want, we make it. This is my business, this building here is 32 years old. Flexcoat, our number one product is we sell coatings to all the fishing rod companies. Almost every fishing rod made in the US, I would say 90% of them use our coating. We call this a lifestyle business. Everything we make, we make it for ourselves first and then we try to sell it. I just started making gadgets and anything related to building fishing rods and it just turned into a business. The reason Ryan and I were so fired up about starting our own small business was to have that lifestyle that my dad had. What we saw with our dad was he had a lot of free time and could do what he wanted to do. The same way he is with those kids as how he was with us. When I got off the bus at three o'clock, he'd drop everything he was doing in the business and be with us. He was engaged, he was hands-on, he was there, he was present. He always had a van around here. I drove it to the Florida Keys 13 times. We didn't have any money. We were living out of the van, sleeping during the daytime in 90 degrees, and then fishing at night below the bridges. It was a lot of fun. And I was kind of encouraged to do that kind of stuff by my dad. I think it teaches you some valuable skills in life. I always say, thank goodness for golf. <laughs> Get those guys off the water. <laughs> I am a true believer in starting your own business, and eventually you'll find a path. As my kids get older, that's one of my main goals is to try to figure out how to get that passion built up inside of them for doing your own thing. When I was becoming a dad, I thought naturally I was going to be a good dad like my dad just because that's what I was exposed to. He set the bar pretty high, almost too high, where it's hard to duplicate for our kids. The most precious resource we have is time, and that's time with the family. It's different times. We have all these other distractions. The easy path is not the right path. It's harder to pull those electronics away from the kids, make them look out the window and see where you're going. The formula is being engaged, being present, and supportive. It's a lot easier to say it than actually do it. I tell you, that's the ultimate in my mind. Just find something you love and just stick with it. Yeti began to take off in 2011 when sales hit 29 million as word spread among the hardcore hunting and fishing crowd. In 2014, that figure hit 147 million. For 2015, Yeti closed in on 450 million in sales. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great piece. And by the way, that's the voice of the American dream there. Practical, sturdy, risk-takers, self-reliant. And it ain't made up, folks. It happens all over the country. We bring you stories like these because, well, the rest of the media doesn't. This is Lee Habib, Yeti's story, a great family story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And we love to tell stories about businesses here on our show. Because without businesses, and particularly small businesses, well, where do people work? And where do local governments get their money to pay for people like teachers and everybody else? And today we have the story of Madam C.J. Walker. And many believe she was the first self-made female millionaire. She also happens to be an African-American woman. And she was certainly the pioneer of the modern hair care industry. Today we have Alelia Bundles telling us the story. She was the first child in her family born free in December of 1867. They lived in an area that had been devastated by the Civil War. Everything, the plantations had been burned down, and now the formerly enslaved people were struggling to just live a life, and they had very little money. There, at the end of every season, they owed money to the plantation owners who had been their former slave owners. Madam C.J. Walker is my great-great-grandmother, and I grew up in a household where both of my parents were in the hair care business. My mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, which had been founded in 1906 by her great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker. So that was really my first introduction to the story of these amazing women in my family. And then years later, I really began to understand the importance and the impact of Madam C.J. Walker. But she started life as Sarah Breedlove on the same plantation in Delta, Louisiana, where her parents had been enslaved. And Sarah Breedlove, uh, as the young child in her family, it was, didn't have much opportunity for education. And then when she was seven years old, both of her parents died. She uh, had to move in with her older sister, Luvenia, and Luvenia was married to a man who was so cruel, as Sarah later said, that she, uh, she got married at 14 to get a home of her own. She married a man named Moses McWilliams. Very little is known about her first husband, Moses McWilliams, but they had one daughter named Alelia when Sarah was 17. And when Sarah was 20, Moses died. So now Sarah Breedlove McWilliams was a widow. She knew she wasn't gonna move back in with her sister and brother-in-law, so she moved up the Mississippi River to St. Louis, where her older brothers had moved about a decade earlier uh, as part of a, an exodus, uh, the, sort of the, we hear about caravans now with people from Central America in the 1870s and 1880s. African-Americans, formerly enslaved people, just left Louisiana and Mississippi because the conditions were so horrible. There was so much racial violence, and they, her brothers had moved to St. Louis to escape that treatment. So she joined her brothers in St. Louis. They had become barbers, and they were doing relatively well. They had a barbershop very near St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And Sarah joined the church. It was really the women of the church who began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. And that is when her life began to change. Sarah Breedlove arrived in St. Louis in around 1888. And now she was Sarah Breedlove McWilliams with a little girl who was about two years old. 
She had had very little formal education. There weren't schools for black children in Louisiana. Even though her family minister, Curtis Pollard, had been a black state senator during Reconstruction when African Americans had gained a great deal of political power, that power was taken away from them by the Ku Klux Klan, so that by the time Sarah was old enough to go to school, there were no schools for black children. So now she's in St. Louis. She knows how to pick cotton. She knows how to wash clothes. She knows how to do domestic work. And she's struggling to raise her daughter. And life is just very difficult, even though her brothers are trying to help her and the women of the church are trying to help her. She doesn't really have enough money to make ends meet. But the women of the church really encourage her to make sure that her daughter is educated. So during the week, she is having to work away from home, having to live in as a domestic. She leaves her daughter at what was called the Colored Orphans Home. There were a number of black women who had organized because they knew there were families who were struggling. There was no daycare in the way that we think about it now. So her daughter Lelia spent uh, part of the week at the Colored Orphans Home. She went to kindergarten with the other children from the school. And then on the weekends or whenever Sarah could be with her, she helped to raise her daughter. They went to church every Sunday at St. Paul AME Church. And even though Sarah was struggling, she had a good enough voice that she was in the choir. Being in the choir allowed her to meet some of the more middle-class women, to travel around the city when the choir performed. And so she was being exposed to a way of life that made her aspire to something better. So time went on, and in 1894, a couple of her brothers had died, and so now her support system, her emotional and financial support system was really crumbling. And she met a man named John Davis. She married John Davis. She thought that that would be helpful to her, that she would be helpful in raising her daughter. And and that turned out to be a disaster. So they ended up splitting up. But around this time, she was under so much stress and she was having so many problems uh, that her hair began to fall out. And she said, I was so ashamed of my frightful appearance that I prayed to the Lord for a solution. And one night in a dream, a big African man appeared and he told me what to mix up for my uh, formula. And some of the ingredients came from Africa. I sent for them, I mixed them together. I applied them to my scalp and my hair began to grow back faster than it had ever fallen out. And so I think there is, that is part of the truth. Um, it's also true that, uh, that she sold products for a while for a woman who became her competitor, a woman named Annie Malone. It's also true that she worked for a while as a cook for, after she moved to Denver, for a man named E.L. Schultz, who owned the largest pharmacy west of the Mississippi River. And he was well aware of products that were already on the market, like Cuticura and formulas that pharmacists had been using and the medical profession had been using really for hundreds of years. A basic formula that was uh, cleaning your hair more often with a shampoo and then an ointment that contained sulfur. And sulfur is a centuries old remedy for healing dandruff and scalp infections. So that was really the combination of Sarah's dreams, Sarah selling other products, other products already being on the market, and coming up with her own formula. But I think one thing that is really important for us to understand 
in you know this era in the 21st century is that in 1906 when Sarah Breedlove McWilliams who was to become Madam Walker started her company and developed her formula most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing and that meant people didn't bathe very often which we don't like to think about but you know people would have to go outside and pump wet, pump water at the well by hand put it in a bucket, heat it on the, a wood stove or on an open fire, get the water hot enough to fill a big, large tin tub, and take a bath. And that might happen once a week. And everybody in the family might use the same bath water. So it's really gross. But as you can see, this would not, you know, bathing was not the sort of luxury thing that we think about now. So most people didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't bathe very often. They washed their hair even less often. And Sarah was one of those women. And there were many women like her because they weren't washing their hair very often. They had really horrible scalp infections. And as a result, they were going bald. So that was really Sarah's uh, real, real problem is that she was going bald and she wanted to figure out a way to have healthier hair. She moved to Denver in uh, 1905 and her good friend, Charles Joseph Walker, whom she had met in St. Louis, who was a newspaper man, moved to Denver. And they got married in January of 1906. And she began to take out ads in the newspaper. All of a sudden, instead of being Sarah McWilliams in her ads in the black newspaper in Denver, now she was Mrs. C.J. Walker. And then in April of 1906, she began to call herself Madam C.J. Walker. And you can think, well, that's a bit of an affectation, uh, but it was really a nod to the fact that Paris, uh, where people were called Madam rather than Mrs., Paris was the center of fashion and beauty culture. And she, like women who were her contemporaries, Elizabeth Arden, Helena Rubinstein, they all called themselves Madam. So it was really kind of a business honorific, as well as a way to, uh, to have some respect and some dignity. And when we come back, we'll continue with the remarkable story of Madam C.J. Walker, as told beautifully by her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. More on the Walker story after these messages. continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker here on Our American Stories. And she's the woman who started the modern hair care industry. Her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, has been telling us her story, and we pick up where we last left off. You know, so she begins to sell her products. You know, her hair is now growing longer, and other women who had scalp infections like she did 
are wondering, Sarah, what have you done? How come your hair is growing? And she and her new husband traveled around Colorado to the various mining towns, to Trinidad, to Pueblo, to Colorado Springs. And even though Colorado had a really small black population, and that was her target audience, there were um, you know, black residents in all of these towns because people had gone, just like other Americans, to try to be part of the gold rush, to try to be part of the silver rush, to do the mining in Colorado. So Sarah was selling her products and, you know, traveling around. And it really became clear to her that she could only grow her market so much in a state where there were very few black residents. So she and Charles Joseph Walker began to travel around the southwestern part of the United States and the South. They went to Texas, to Kansas, to Oklahoma, Mississippi, Louisiana. So every town she would go to, she would demonstrate the products. She would find a woman in town who seemed to have a scalp infection and that she would hire a room in a church and get the water heated and wash the woman's hair and then show just what her products could do. And then she was always very good about picking out the women who seemed to have the most personality and who might be leaders in their church, who might be with their missionary society or with their choir. She had a really great knack for finding women who were leaders. And she would pick that woman woman to be her sales agent so that when she left the town, she would leave a supply of products with that person and then she would stay in touch. And then as the woman began to develop a customer base, she would order more products from Sarah. She had asked her daughter to move to Denver so that she would have somebody who was mixing up the products as she and her husband were traveling around. So they continued for about a year and a half, um, going to as many towns as possible. She was very smart about advertising. She'd take out a little ad in whatever black newspaper for the town where she was going the next week so that she would have a crowd. She knew how to develop a crowd and how to create buzz. So after about a year and a half, she needed to find a new base, and she had been along the East Coast by now, and she decided to settle in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh seemed, she must have met somebody there. She always connected with the African Methodist Episcopal Church congregation. She would find a friend who would let her stay. You know, somebody would write a letter and she would be able to stay with the minister or the doctor, black doctors, because most hotels were not open to, um, you know, black clientele at that point because of the horrible Jim Crow segregation. But she settled in Pittsburgh and she had her daughter come from Denver to Pittsburgh. Now she and her husband, Charles Joseph Walker, and her daughter are living there. They open the first beauty school called Lelia College, which she named after her daughter, and then they began to train even more women. She continued traveling in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And in 1909, she visited Indianapolis, and she was really looking for a new base, and she was very impressed with Indianapolis. When she got there, she noticed that there was a very thriving black business community. There were three black newspapers, including uh, one that was a nationally distributed newspaper called the Indianapolis Freeman. So this Indianapolis Freeman was uh, something Madam Walker immediately recognized as a great place to advertise. She took out an ad and she used before and after photographs. 
the before picture she put in the center and her hair was very short and this was when her hair had been falling out and then on either side in a sort of trio of pictures she had a front view and a side view and her hair was long and her hair was down to the middle of her back and very healthy and it was kind of like a Jenny Craig commercial I mean you could really see the you know the impact that her products really worked and in that uh, in this ad she took the a, a third of the page from top to bottom placed the pictures at the top and then the ad included letters that were testimonials from women who both were her customers and women who were her sales agents and she, one woman wrote her a letter and she said before i started using madam walker's wonderful hair grower my hair was an eighth of an inch long and now my hair is down my back and I have been able to throw my wig away. So this was real, you know, you know, real endorsement uh, that said the products worked. But there were also letters from women who had become her sales agents. And one woman said, you have made it possible for a black woman to make more money in a day selling your products than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. This was huge because there was so much discrimination against, you know, women in general working outside the home, but especially women of color, that the only jobs that they could be hired for were maids and cooks and laundresses and sharecroppers. So for a woman to be able to make her own money, her own independent money, meant she didn't have to go work in somebody else's house, live in somebody else's house and leave her children at home. She could have her own business in her house, uh, doing hair, or selling products. And so these, so Madam Walker always was pushing not just the products and you can feel beautiful at a time when very few people were telling black women they were beautiful. She always pushed financial and economic independence and empowerment. So these ads were very powerful. Added to that, one of the reasons she had picked Indianapolis is because it was a transportation hub. It was called the Crossroads of America, and that was because of all of the trains that went through Indianapolis every day. At that point in 1910, it was near the center of population in America. The Western United States was still pretty sparsely populated. California was not the powerhouse that we think of it now with a large population. So Indiana really had quite a bit of a train traffic. And because the trains were going through town, that meant that it was a great place for her to do business with her mail order business. It also meant that the black men who worked on the trains, the Pullman porters, who were traveling from coast to coast, could take papers, copies of the Indianapolis Freeman, and sell those papers as they traveled around. So Madam Walker placed her ad in the Indianapolis Freeman, knowing that these black Pullman porters would pick up stacks of those papers as they came through town. And if they were going to San Francisco or Boston or Detroit or Atlanta or New York or Chicago, her ads were going to be seen by people. She really was a marketing uh, and distribution genius. By training thousands of women to be her sales agents, she developed a workforce, an army of women who were selling her products. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker. And again, it's being told so beautifully by her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. And what's most striking is it's almost a history lesson of a sort, too. 
And that's what we try to do here with so many of our stories. And we're looking for your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we were talking, and this could easily be one of our American Dreamers stories, too. In fact, we should make it so. Because free enterprise has been the way out for so many people in this great country and a way forward and a way to improve, well, improve our own lives, our own families' lives. So when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker, the first self-made female millionaire, her story, and in a way, her great-great-granddaughter's story, too, because you can tell here that the great-great-granddaughter has just tremendous affection for carrying on this remarkable family story. Madam C.J. Walker's story continues here on Our American Stories. to hear the last segment of the story of Madam C.J. Walker, the pioneer of the women's hair care industry and the first woman to become a self-made millionaire in this country. Her success came from her great product and her amazing ability to advertise and market. Let's get back to the story. She traveled most of the year going from town to town doing lectures. One of the things that I, one, one story I remember from her secretary. She had a secretary who came to work for her in 1914 when she was still a teenager. And when I was growing up and really starting to do my research, Violet Reynolds was still working for the Walker Company. One story that her her secretary, Violet Reynolds, told me. So Madam Walker had very little formal education, but she was a self-educated woman. She hired um, a woman named Alice Kelly who was the dean of girls at a school called Eckstein Norton, a black school in Kentucky. And she had great leadership skills, but she hired Alice Kelly to be the manager of her factory, but she also really hired her as a personal tutor. But she was always improving. She really believed in lifelong learning so that when she was in and whenever she was in Indianapolis, because she was traveling so much, but on those days when she was in, in in Indianapolis, she would gather the young ladies who worked in her office and have a meeting with them and talk to them about her travels and tell stories. But she also would read the newspaper with them. They would read the newspaper together. And some of the girls had some education, some had more than others, but everybody wanted to learn. And if somebody in reading the newspaper discovered a word they didn't know, she would have them look it up together in the dictionary. And she said, there's no shame in not knowing. We all should be trying to improve ourselves. So 1910, when Madam Walker moves to Indianapolis, she's just really just on the cusp of breaking out. She's still, you know, making 
a few thousand dollars a year, which is more money than most, you know, even white businessmen in, in America are making at the time. But she's just really poised to become nationally known. And shortly after she moves to Indianapolis, there is a big push to build a new YMCA in the black community. Her, she has become, Madam Walker becomes friends with George Knox, the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, the paper that has done so much to improve her uh, advertisements and to raise her profile. George Knox is the chairman of the board of the Black YMCA. And Madam Walker is very impressed with what he does. And shortly after Madam Walker arrives in Indianapolis, this big push to build a YMCA is led by George Knox. He invites Jesse Moreland, one of the first black secretaries of the YMCA, to come to Indianapolis to do what he has done in many other cities, which is to uh, hold a big rally to raise money. Uh, and he has persuaded Julius Rosenwald, the uh, president of Sears Roebuck, to pledge $25,000 to any city in America where the black and white communities will work together to raise the balance of $75,000 to build a $100,000 building. So Jesse Morland comes to Indianapolis and holds a rally, brings together the leadership of the black YMCA and the leadership of the white YMCA and some of the wealthy white businessmen uh, who are at Eli Lilly and at the Indianapolis 500 Speedway racetrack stand up during the rally and they pledge $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 to this effort to build this YMCA. Now, understanding that YMCAs are still racially segregated in 1910, but this was going to be something that would help the black community. So Madam Walker, to everyone's surprise, stood up and said, I pledge $1,000. And I'm doing this because I believe if I help our boys, it will help our girls. And that is what I am interested in. Now, people were stunned. No black woman had ever contributed that amount of money to that kind of secular cause. And she began to be written about in newspapers, not just black newspapers, but white newspapers. People wanted to know the secret to her success. And they were writing about not just her business, but they were writing about her philanthropy. And eventually the, the YMCA was built. But Madam Walker, in the meantime, realized that people wanted to hear her story. And so her crowds began to get larger. She traveled from town to town to sell her products. And she decided during the summer of 1912 that she wanted to attend the National Negro Business League Convention. That organization had been founded by Booker T. Washington who was the most powerful black man in America. He had had dinner at the White House with Theodore Roosevelt. That was quite controversial because segregation was still a very much a part of the ethos of America. Madam Walker arrived at the 1912 National Negro Business League Convention uh, and sent word to Booker T. Washington that she wished to tell her story. She wanted to be included on the program. And she had met Booker T. Washington before, but he had been relatively dismissive of her. He had pretty much ignored her. But she was not a woman who wanted to be ignored. So on the first day of the convention, she asked politely about speaking, and he overlooked her. And on the second day of the convention, her good friend George Knox, the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, stood up and said, 
we should hear from Madam C.J. Walker. She is the woman who gave $1,000 to the building fund of the YMCA in my hometown of Indianapolis. She has an incredible story to tell. And even though Knox was a longtime member of the National Negro Business League and a good friend of Booker T. Washington's, he dismissed George Knox. And Booker T. Washington said, you know, we're discussing lifetime membership. But rather than call on somebody to discuss lifetime membership, he called upon one of Madam Walker's neighbors from Indianapolis, a man named H.L. Saunders. And Mr. Saunders proceeded to talk about his business. Now, he was very successful, and his business was now a regional business with customers in Indiana and the four surrounding states. At this point, Madam Walker, just six years after she had started the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, had customers all over the United States, the Caribbean, and Central America. As it turns out, Mr. Saunders had been the treasurer for the fundraising campaign for the YMCA. Uh, and he had given the very generous sum of $250. But Madam Walker, of course, had given four times as much, $1,000. Now, I know she was a good church-going woman, and she knew that you weren't supposed to compare what you put into the collection basket to what others put in. However, I can't help but imagine that she felt at least a twinge of resentment. And on the third and final day of the conference, as the last banker was completing his report, she stood at her seat, looked toward Booker T. Washington at the podium, and said, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself. I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. And I have built my own factory on my own ground. The next year, he invited her back as a keynote speaker. So Madam Walker was a person who had worked hard all her life. And she said, when she was a washerwoman, she said, when I was, when I was a washerwoman, I was an excellent washerwoman. I, I took pride in my work. I always took pride in my work, and I always knew that hard work was important. But when people would ask her the secret to her success, she would say to them, there is no royal flower-strewn path to success. And if there is, I have not found it. For whatever success I have attained has been the result of much hard work and many sleepless nights. I got my start by giving myself a start. So don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. You have to get up and make them for yourself. You know, she became very wealthy, and it was uh, really an American rags to riches story. She had been born on a plantation in Delta, Louisiana, one of the poorest areas in America, an area that had been devastated during the Civil War, and she was on a cotton plantation making no money. So, an orphaned at an, a very early age, very little education, and yet by the time she died in May of 1919, she was living in a mansion 
in one of the wealthiest communities in America, just a few miles away from John D. Rockefeller. She had, during those 51 years, gone from an uneducated washerwoman to a millionaire. And great job on that, Faith, and thanks again to Alelia Bundles for narrating and telling this remarkable story of her great-great-grandmother, and that's Madam C.J. Walker. And what a story that was, her donation to the YMCA. It just, that $1,000, what it meant to her, what it meant to her life to be able to be a woman and an African-American woman and do that. I got my start by giving myself a start. Whatever success I've had has been the result of much hard work and many sleepless nights, and no finer words can be said about anyone who wants to go down the road of entrepreneurship and cutting your own path. And what a terrific story. Again, send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org about your people, your family, somebody in your family like Madam C.J. Walker. This is Our American Stories, Madam C.J. Walker's story, and her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles.